It's July 21st, 2019, and this is episode 404 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today we'll be kicking things off with an in-depth discussion on what are commonly called crypto credit cards. Then, after the break, we're back with another Global Voices interview. This time focused on Bitcoin in India, with returning guest hosts Alex Gladstein and Aparna Krishna. Thanks to Edge.app and blockchaintraining.org for sponsoring today's episode. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas Antonopoulos. Hello. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Thanks to everybody for being here today. This should be an interesting conversation. So a couple of weeks ago, I uh, was having a conversation with somebody and they were asking me about crypto credit cards. And I was like, oh, crypto credit cards. I know what those are. And as we talked about it, I kind of realized I actually don't know what they are. I, I kind of thought I knew what they were, but there's actually a lot going on there. So today I just wanted to kind of have a brief conversation about some of the different options that are out there as far as crypto credit cards going. And really we're talking about this in the context almost exclusively of how these things work rather than endorsing, recommending. I don't use any of these. I don't intend to use any of these, but I think it's an interesting kind of development in the space. And I wanted to talk about it today. Yeah, I think I'm similar to you, Adam. I haven't been in the market for one of these for a while. And I thought, oh, yeah, I heard about that like five years ago. But I think my knowledge could use an update, too. So I was just kind of wondering off the bat, has anybody here ever used a crypto credit card? I used one. Oh, OK. I used two, actually. I used the shift card from Coinbase. I think it was probably back in 2015. And I also used the BitPay card that same year and regretted using both of those. So the BitPay prepaid credit card is like the simplest possible way that you could do this. And it uses decentralization in ways that I like, but it comes at the cost of convenience. Essentially what it is, is you buy a credit card from them, right? You buy this debit card from them and it costs like 10 bucks or 15 bucks as a one-time fee. And then you get an address that you can make payments to. And whenever you send Bitcoin, or I think they accept a couple other cryptocurrencies to the payment address, then it converts it right then, you know, sells it and turns it into dollars and then puts that balance onto your BitPay, uh, you know, prepaid card as a prepaid balance. So when you go to a store, you can use it. And it's basically the equivalent of a gift card more than it is a credit card. But the advantage of it is, is that you hold all your cryptocurrency until you actually want to top up the card, which as I came to discover was not exactly how the other ones work. Andreas, is that pretty consistent with how the BitPay credit card used to work when you were using it? Yes, I believe that's exactly how it worked. I'm just curious. I want to know why Andreas regretted using it. The primary reason was, you know, the U.S. has passed this regulation, the IRS policy that Bitcoin is treated as property and therefore subject to capital gains without what is known as the de minimis exemption. So the de minimis exemption is if you do currency conversion for less than $200, like for example, when you travel abroad and you buy something at a coffee shop, you don't have to do capital gains for transactions under $200. And people who don't even know that, they don't do capital gains. You know, if they buy a Gucci bag for much more than $200, they still don't do capital gains, although they should. Well, with Bitcoin, there is no de minimis exemption. You can buy a dollar worth of something, you have to report 
and account for the capital gains on that dollar worth transaction. Now, having a credit card or debit card or crypto card makes it possible to do a lot of little transactions, which I did as an experiment, really, and mostly while doing foreign travel. And the biggest problem was that once I understood the accounting nightmare that this created, no, once my accountant understood the accounting nightmare and then billed me for it, it was obvious that it was not worth doing. I think that's also the reason that we've seen a lot of the retail use of crypto die down in the United States, because outside the U.S., much more use of retail crypto inside the United States with the capital gains accounting rules. It's just too much hassle. The other reason was foreign transaction fees and the exchange rate being applied, which in both cases was way too expensive. I think at the time, the shift card charged a minimum foreign transaction fee of $3 plus 3%. Wow. Okay, so the costs add up really quickly, and it's just not worth it. Okay, so then that means it's only really worth it to use one of these things if you had trouble obtaining credit from more traditional sources. Or you're outside the U.S., which, you know, if you don't have the capital gains burden, which doesn't exist in most other countries, and you live in a country that's not very well banked, or you're trying to do things like buy things from Amazon and you don't have a credit card that works. For example, Argentina would be a perfect example of that. You have crypto, you want to buy something from Amazon, you can't use an Argentinian credit card. Yeah, especially if it's a digital product like a Kindle book or a video or something like that. Exactly. So that's perfect. It's also worth mentioning, especially in the Coinbase example, that they're not giving you credit. It's basically a debit card. They're just using a credit card to effectuate a debit-like feature. Well, so let's talk about the underlying way that the Coinbase credit card or the Coinbase card actually works. Let's stop using the word credit because <laughs> I agree. I think that's confusing the issue here. Let's call it plastic. Sure. The Coinbase plastic. Anti-hodl device. <laughs> <laughs> is similar in a lot of ways to the BitPay plastic, but Coinbase allows you to, for better or worse, not sell your cryptocurrency until you actually make a purchase in real life. So the BitPay card, it's basically an account, right? That you just top up and you top up the gift card with crypto whenever you want and you hold the crypto. But with Coinbase, they have you hold your crypto within your Coinbase account. And then effectively, when you make a payment, and you know if that payment is $10, then they make a sale on your behalf through your account of $10 worth of your Bitcoin or whatever crypto you've indicated you want this plastic to draw down from. That has, of course, the advantage of being convenient. Yeah, the sale is done immediately. And, you know, that's key because essentially you get to hold the crypto until and not a second before you actually make a purchase. Right. And that is the advantage of this. I mean, that's at least the purported advantage. But as you mentioned, Andreas, there are meaningful fees that come into play here. And looking at the way that they do fees... And keep in mind, this is only available to residents of France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and the UK. So this is not available in the US at all. They have a 3% standard credit card fee and then a 2.49% crypto liquidation fee, which is effectively what they charge you when they make these ad hoc sales. And then I believe that there's a 3% currency exchange fee as well that I didn't write down, but I'm pretty sure that that applied to this one as well. So if you're using this in a country that it wasn't issued in, then there's going to be an additional 3% on top of that. So again, like it's good if you think that cryptocurrency is going to go through the roof and ergo, you don't want to sell any until you absolutely have to. But from a compliance standpoint, Andreas, it sounds like that's where you really ran into problems on this because each of those $1 payments really adds up in the accounting side. 
Well, with the shift card or the original Coinbase plastic, it was the foreign transaction fees, exchange rates, and conversion fees that killed it. Because I did it as an experiment and I made like 20 or 30 little transactions very quickly just to try it out. And then I went back and looked at the statement. It was like, oh, gulp. My $2 coffee costs $3 for transaction fee plus 3% plus 249 whatever fee and plus the we're actually a bank, not a crypto company fee. And then all of those things added up. I literally ended up paying you know, six or seven dollar fees on a two dollar purchase. It was a bit ridiculous. Yeah. So that card didn't last. You know, they're out with this new one. And seems like maybe in certain circumstances, if you want to live entirely in crypto but still have an interface, there could be a reason to use something like this. Uh, you know, honestly, I think it goes back to what Stephanie said. Like if you can get credit then even better than not spending crypto until you absolutely have to is not spending crypto until 30 days after you absolutely have to. So you, what you do is you use a credit card and then once a month you pay off the credit card with a single crypto transaction 30 days later. So you huddle for 30 days longer, which is what I've been doing for years since if I don't have dollars on hand. So again, it goes back to maybe this is more suited for people who can't get credit cards at all. And, you know, I can sort of speak to this in that there are a number of people in my situation, which is they're in their late 20s, early 30s. They've been a Bitcoin person for so long that they just ethically didn't believe in credit and they just hodl everything they possibly can. And now they have this treasury of an asset type that no one would recognize as an asset and they're trying to look to buy things or get rent or, you know, go out and engage in commercial activity. And you just have a non-existent credit history and a large amount of an asset that no one wants to look at to secure against. And you just need to think of ways to go about approaching it. There's a very, uh, someone who used to be prominent in this space who went from a literal non-existent credit history to a 710 in one year, just because they were holding crypto for so long and didn't believe at all in credit and then just needed to buy a house for their family and then realized that they just needed to play the game just to even have a credit history. Because the funny thing about crypto is you can, you know, hodl, be financially successful. And because you're succeeding in a way that doesn't play the game, the way that the financial system wants you to, you have a new weird gross type of financial non-inclusion, which is like you have all these assets, but they won't really recognize the asset and you have no credit history. So they won't extend you any loans. And you're in this super weird catch 21 of having enough money, but not being able to engage in anything with it. And the more that Bitcoin goes up and the older that, you know, the, the kids that got involved with Bitcoin get, the more this is becoming a more and more reoccurring problem. So it's a very niche type of financial uninclusion. It's almost as if the credit reporting system is designed to kind of encourage people to become debt slaves. Oh, never mind. What am I thinking? Of course it is. But, but you see, here's the thing. It's not crypto. If you have a bank account full of cash, it's not on your credit report. You actually have to go into debt to build credit history. Bank accounts cash checking accounts, and you could have half a million dollars in a checking account and a credit score of 400 because you don't have any history. And you'll call up and say, well, how can I build 
but and they'll say take out a loan I'm like but i don't want a loan i've got half a million in my checking account no sorry you know you have to take on debt and not just a bit of debt they want you to take on more debt and a lot of debt and different types of debt a bit of revolving a bit of personal loan a bit of this secured a bit of that and then they want to see a good number of them but not too many and they want them rolling over every now and then it's almost as if the entire mechanism is designed to put you into debt, hopefully to get you to a point where you end up racking up fees to enrich some group of, you know, bankers. Yeah, I'm personally looking at, you know, what the next run-up may look like if it does happen and just thinking through financial planning. And I talked with someone and I said, so if this happens with the price, let's say I pay out all of my student loans, what would that look to my credit? It would ruin it. Yeah, because the amount of debt that I have goes to virtually nothing. And then I have no payment history. So he's literally like, look, just make the payments. And that'll be better for you than just paying outright all of your debt. Yep. It's the man. They always get you one way or another. Mostly another. (laughs) Well, another thing that comes into play when you start looking at like buying a house or getting a mortgage or something is income. (laughs) And income is one of those things that as a person in the cryptocurrency space, sometimes You make a lot of money off investments and income is a lot lumpier. Yeah, on paper, you might have no income, but you have a lot of wealth. It's almost as if the entire system is designed to not only make you a debt slave, but make sure that you work for a wage salaried position to a giant corporation. I mean, what more could they do to drive you in that direction? I don't know. Tie healthcare to it? I mean, (laughs) now I'm just being silly. Yeah, indeed. Self-employed? How dare you? (laughs) Yeah, it's silly because I have a company right now and every dollar I put into the company goes into my company. And so I don't have a salary. I don't have an income. And just to improve my credit, it may make more sense for me to sell money to put into the company to then pay myself with so I have proof of income. It's a weird set of incentives that winds up happening if you fall outside of the very rigidly defined kind of structure that we have right now. Okay, so what are some of the other models for cryptoplastic? So there's two variants that I want to talk about just really briefly. I went looking for projects that are using smart contracts to enable this, right? Because both BitPay and Coinbase, totally centralized companies, and there's been all this talk about uh, smart contracts as sort of a means to disintermediate. I went looking and found a project called 10X, which was very popular a couple of years ago, that basically can be described as Coinbase's card, but using an Ethereum smart contract instead of holding the tokens within your Coinbase account. And then on the other side, there's a project called Token Card that's basically BitPay's card. But instead of holding it in your wallet, you hold it in a smart contract wallet that you launch, which is a smart contract and is basically equivalent to a wallet that you would have, but is, you know, integrated or something like that. So as far as I could tell, there are smart contract variants of all of these that exist, but they don't appear to offer any advantages versus just working with a company that's insured and has been around for a long time. Because the smart contract replaces the mechanism for either replacing the wallet or replacing the account that you're holding it in. But ultimately, in both cases, the other company still has exactly as much control, right? The BitPay equivalent can't automatically debit on your behalf. And the Coinbase equivalent, you know, automatically debits on your behalf and incurs all of that stuff, but probably with worse accounting. Has anyone done that with a diet stable coin? Uh, I haven't seen one that does that, but honestly, I didn't go looking for every project. I just went looking for kind of indicative projects. So it's not to say that it doesn't exist. Plastic tie. 
(laughs) (laughs) If you look at Coinbase, though, you can actually select for them to use your US dollar balance, which I consider that a stable coin. That's just a non-tokenized stable coin, right? That you're holding within Coinbase. And so in that circumstance, you could draw down from that. I think that as time goes on, we're going to see more stable coin integration into these. And in fact, I did see one, I think it was Nexo. We're going to talk about these in a minute, but there was one of the last projects that actually only accepted a stable coin and they're going to be expanding to other things. So the last kind of variant I found, which is pretty much the closest to a credit card, the rest were really just more like, you know, prepaid visas or debit cards, is this idea of credit cards as crypto backed microloans, right? Where basically in all of the other scenarios we've been talking about, when you spend money, you've either already, you know, given them the money and they converted it to dollars, you know, or they're selling it for you at the moment that you're doing it, but there's no actual credit that's being extended there. I found a couple of projects, notably Nexo and Crypto.com, that basically say, all right, well, we're actually going to do real credit cards here where you have a balance and you have to make payments and there's an interest rate that accrues every month. And basically what they do is they say, okay, in order to give you that credit, we want you to deposit a certain amount of crypto with us. And then if you deposit you know, $1,000 worth of Bitcoin with us or $1,000 worth of Tether in one of these cases then we'll give you $400 worth of credit on this card. And when you go out and you make a purchase, well, your crypto isn't actually sold. It's just like a normal credit card. You accrue the interest, but they know that in the event that you default on it, that they effectively have enough assets that they can be made more than whole and uh, and get their money, even in a scenario where the value of the cryptocurrency drops by like half. Well, I mean, that's a collateralized debt obligation, exactly like how MakerDAO works. Or like in the traditional world, this sounds something like a like a home equity line of credit or something like that. Yeah, exactly. It's a secured loan. Yeah. I actually, one of the ways that you can start your credit off, which is what I've been telling other crypto people, is you can put $3,000 into a savings account in this bank called Armed Forces Bank. And they'll give you a $3,000 credit line equivalent to the savings account that you have as collateral. And that's one of the ways you can build up credit is just by using this like fake credit line that you have because it's fully secured. I think that Amazon just launched something like that too, which is basically like credit cards for people who can't get credit cards. You put up a deposit and then if you pay your bills on time, you know, then within like six months, they give you a real Amazon credit card or something like that. Yeah. So like if the amount of credit you can extend to yourself is included in your score, your credit history score, you could actually put $100,000 into a savings account and then use that as collateral for the bank to then also open up a $100,000 credit line that's secured against the $100,000 savings account. (laughs) And now you have $100,000 in credit. Oh, it's a great system. Ponzi would be proud. So yeah. Broadly speaking, these are the three types of models that I could find is the prepay up front, the sell as you spend, and then the collateralized loan approach. And some of these collateralized loans are really marketplaces where on the back end, they're like, this isn't our money that we're using. You can put in your money and you can earn, you know, I think one of them is offering 8% per year or something like that for deposits. And again, like there are certainly dangers about that because whenever you give your funds to any of these companies, inherently they control those funds and therefore you have some counterparty risk, whereas just holding a crypto, you don't. But it does seem like there are some scenarios where this is appealing to very specific groups of people. So I actually looked into Nexo and their card. And, you know, we've all been in crypto long enough to know the boy who cried wolf problem of companies saying they think they're going to get a credit card. And then the wait between when they think they're going to get it to when they will, it's a very different time. But uh, Nexo's proposed model is 
very interesting and it's sort of like fire. If you know what you're doing, it's valuable, but you're more often or not going to get burned. They're intending to let you collateralize into a credit card. And then as your Bitcoin increases, they will dynamically increase the credit line that you get in your card with the loan to value ratio of your deposit. So if you put Bitcoin in at 10,000 and they give you a $4,000 credit line, if Bitcoin goes to 20,000, it'll just automatically go to 8,000. So you can start spending this thing as if it's free money, but you're decreasing your LTV if Bitcoin adjusts back. And you're, it's just, it's a very easy way to induce margin calls. I was going to say, yeah, the margin call thing, like that seems like the real potential danger here is that if the limit can adjust up, that means it can adjust down as well. And if you had spent $3,000 on that 4,000 balance, and now that balance is $2,000 because crypto has decreased in value, then they're going to margin call you and sell your assets. Correct. I'll just keep playing the same broken record. That's exactly how DAI works. That's how the MakerDAO works. So what you do is you collateralize the CDP, which is the contract. And you put in the principal, and if the exchange rate of ETH goes up, then you can draw more die against it. And you have to have it at a loan-to-value ratio of you know, 150% or greater, or whatever the current ratio is. Otherwise, you get a margin call. Now, of course, what happens next? Well, interesting enough, first of all, this is decentralized. But what happens next is even more interesting, which is that you can now buy margin call insurance effectively in a secondary market where other people will top up your account for a specific fee to be protected from margin calls if there's a sudden drop in the value. Aren't those just called options? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's a peer-to-peer decentralized option market that grows on top of MakerDAO. The thing that does concern me about MakerDAO versus a Nexo, which is at least Nexo is a company, So they have obligations towards what constitutes a loan shark limit. If you look at how MakerDAO dynamically adjusts with no lower or upper limit, the fee, now the fees have gone from under 1% to now I think they're talking about potentially 11 or even more percent and how that keeps increasing. It's really scary because it's decentralized. Everyone gets to pretend that they're not the one who increased the rate where DAI may go to 50%. You know, DAI may be the next, you know, be your own loan shark (laughs) type of payday lending system, because I don't know if they have any functional controls and what the upper bound is for the variable rate, because that's the whole process of it, which is we'll price you whatever the market will bear. And because it doesn't have those upper or lower bounds, you can open yourself up to very bad positions that you wouldn't had you done a centralized provider, like one that's, you know, regulated by the US. Yeah. One of the things that concerned me about Nexo model versus MakerDAO is Nexo is a company. They hold the keys and not your keys, not your coins. So they can basically walk away with your collateral, which they can't do in MakerDAO. So it's half a dozen of one, six of another, right? Yeah. There's also a very important thing to discuss, which is a conflation of terms that some of the people who are marketing securitized lending and crypto are doing right now, which is if anyone represents themselves as insured, you have to really look into what they mean by insured, because a number of these securitized lenders are putting their balances in Gemini or in BitGo, and BitGo has insurance against deposits in BitGo, but that's not to say that their leverage trading That if the ledger of trading has a systemic default and that collateral gets called, 
that you're insured against that loss. It's not FDIC insurance. Wasn't that the Bitfinex issue? Right. So it's not FDIC insurance because some of these guys have their funds in Bitco and Bitco's insured against the hack. But if the collateralized lender has a bunch of defaults and that Bitcoin then goes to that person, you need to check to see if you're insured against that risk as an investor. And to my knowledge, there isn't anyone who has that risk covered. However, it's really important when they say they're insured to know specifically what risk they're covering, because I feel like a lot of people are conflating one type of insurance with the other when they're making financial decisions about where they put their money. So when it comes to collateralized lending and engaging in margin, that's the whole point that crypto was trying to escape is that type of understanding of finance. And it's really hard to exist in the in-between phase where we're transitioning from one phase to the other. But I think that when it comes to putting leverage against your Bitcoin, it's sort of like stabbing somebody. You could have a very, very particular set of skills that very few of us have. And when you stab someone, it's called surgery. But for everyone else, it's a crime. (laughs) (laughs) And when I think about this collateralized lending, I think it's kind of like that. Yeah, collateralized lending in general, it definitely seems like has has that sort of core underlying issue. But, you know, just to circle back around to the ones we were talking about at first, I think it's important that we don't conflate the more complicated kind of like lending based ones versus something like the BitPay card, which ultimately like it kind of lacks in convenience compared to some of the other options because you have to top it up manually. But ultimately it's completely in your control, right? The tax implications are, are limited to the amount of times that you're topping up because otherwise everything is denominated in dollars. As like a functional thing, I think the BitPay card is the only one here that I would use if I was going to use something like this. And I don't think that I would use any of them in practice. (laughs) Well, the only problem, of course, then is that BitPay is going to give you a BIP70 payment request that doesn't work with any wallets. Suggest that you should pay instead with Bitcoin Cash because the recommended fee is 300 Satoshis per byte. And then complain by email every six minutes that your confirmations haven't come through because you didn't pay enough fee. Can we just summarize that this plastic is the devil? And (laughs) if you wrap crypto with plastic, it's just the devil again. Um, And then you realize that your friendly, cuddly crypto company, it's a bank. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for another sponsored minute with Paul from Edge.app, a non-custodial exchange to buy, sell, and trade crypto. Hey, Paul. Hey, Adam. Uh, Happy to announce today that we've just added a new integration partner into Edge, allowing people to buy a dozen different cryptocurrencies from their phone with credit cards and even Apple Pay. So our new partner, MoonPay, enables this. For the first time ever, we're now seeing a tight integration with people on a mobile device letting people purchase crypto with just a couple taps of like their power button on an iPhone device. Now people can still use it on Android as well with credit cards and MoonPay has a great user experience making that process really seamless. It's available today in Europe and UK and soon to be available in other parts of the world, including the US. But we do invite people to give it a try out now and let us know what they think. To get your hands on one of the most powerful yet user-friendly crypto apps out there, stop by edge.app today. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Adam. Let's Talk Bitcoin has been covering blockchain technology for years, and you're hearing about it more than ever. Move past the jargon to gain a robust understanding at Blockchain Training Conference 2019. With three tracks of masterclasses taught by industry luminaries, you'll leave BTC 2019 confident with certifications to prove it. 
earn your CBP certification to stand out from other experts. The LTB crew will also be there for a special live show. Register today at blockchaintraining.org to get an unparalleled education. That's blockchaintraining.org. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here again with Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation for another interview showcasing perspectives and voices from beyond the borders of our everyday experience. For today's conversation, we're joined by Aparna Krishnan. Aparna, thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. Excited to be on this. So we're going to start with the basics. Where are you located? And before you became involved with cryptocurrency, what's your background? Absolutely. So I'm currently based in San Francisco. I recently did a study in India to understand the scope of cryptocurrencies in emerging markets. So I got into the crypto space sometime in 2015. I was passionate about cryptography. I had just heard about Bitcoin. I wanted to understand what was going on there. So I started by reading the Bitcoin white paper. And that pretty much led me down this rabbit hole. So that was in 2015. What was it specifically at that point in 2015? Was there a catalyzing event or was there a bubble at the time? What was the thing that pushed you from you know not being aware of it or interested to being aware of it at that time? I think coming to Berkeley and hearing about other people using this technology called Bitcoin, I was more intrigued from an intellectual standpoint back then and just curious about the map behind it, which is kind of what got me into it in the first place. So you really did come at this from almost a purely intellectual standpoint because you were kind of right place, right time to be exposed to all of those things. Exactly. So when you did get involved with cryptocurrency, it sounds like you took kind of a more academic approach to understanding it. As your interest evolved in it, walk us through your journey here. So initially, I started by teaching a class at Berkeley on cryptocurrencies. I started Blockchain and Berkeley's education team taught a few different blockchain executive education programs, and all of that helped me learn a lot about the space. Something I realized through doing all of that was that people were trying to build on top of a cryptocurrency that wasn't scalable or wasn't private. And all the visions that people had laid out in this magic internet money future were not really being built. And so that kind of got me to think about the research angle a little bit which is why I got into proof-of-stake research. I was doing that for a couple of years, primarily because I wanted to build a scalable cryptocurrency. Going from there, I think sometime last year, I started to realize that there were a lot of scalability solutions out there, but very few people actually building on top of these or very few people directly being impacted in their everyday lives. And this kind of got me to a point of almost an intellectual crisis where I was wondering if I was just building these technologies for my own intellectual satisfaction or there were people out there who were actually going to be impacted by this. And if so, who were these people? Like, how was their life going to change because of cryptocurrency or blockchain? So, Parno, how does that connect with your journey to interview folks in India and learn more about what's happening there with regard to cryptocurrency adoption? So... Something that people have been talking about for a while in the crypto space is how cryptocurrencies are going to bank the unbanked. And along those lines of thinking, I was curious to understand what that would look like in a country like India. So I was planning on going to India to visit my family 
last December. And I took that opportunity to start working on a field study there and understand what banking the unbanked would even mean. So your angle was less about difficulties in banking and finance and Indians needing to send money abroad, perhaps, and more about people who don't have a bank account or maybe a national ID being able to access the financial system? Yeah, that was the primary goal of the study. Can you give us some general background in terms of how many people in India don't have a bank account or how many people are locked out of the international financial system as it stands? Yeah. One thing that's actually really interesting that I started to realize as I did this study was that almost 90% of Indians have an identity card issued by the government of India. So the government of India has issued something called Aadhaar. And as part of this, the government's also been opening bank accounts for a large number of people. I would say about 20% of Indians still don't have a bank account, but that is still a very small percentage compared to other countries in the world. One and two, that number has been reducing at a very fast pace, partly because the government's been taking a lot of different initiatives to bridge that gap. So what does it mean when you're on Adhar? So when you have an Aadhaar card, that basically is your identity for everything. So right from getting discounted groceries to getting a utility bill to sometimes even having your grades linked to this identity card. It's all you ever need in India and it's all linked to all aspects of your life. So if the Indian government is on this quest to sort of bank everybody into this centralized system, then why are people experimenting with things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency? Like what is the upside? Are there remittances cases? What are some of the difficulties people are having with international payments? That's a great question. And I think one thing that I started to realize as I was doing this study was when you say something like banking the unbanked, it's important to understand why people are unbanked in the first place. And one thing that I found really interesting in India was that a large number of these people who are unbanked don't know how to use the existing financial system. It's not that they don't have access to financial systems. And so to help them get access to financial systems, it means to build something that is usable by them, that is in line with their perceptions of the world. These are people who struggle to use a debit card, people who don't know that they can do things other than withdraw cash with their debit card and like would give away their PIN number to a stranger. I remember this one story where I was talking to this old lady and I was like, hey, do you have a bank account or do you have a debit card? I met her at an ATM and she came up to me and she said, hey, here's my PIN number. Can you withdraw cash? I don't know how to take money out from this ATM. I'm afraid it's going to get stuck in there. And I told her, how are you comfortable with giving me your PIN number? Do you know that it's not something you should be giving out to other people? And she said, well, I need the money urgently. You seem like you're a trustworthy person. I've read faces for my entire life, and I don't think you'll run away with my card. There's not that much money on it anyway, so just please take out the money for me. And that was a very interesting experience for me because I realized that what cryptocurrencies can do is provide access to people who don't have financial services or access to financial services, but it can't bridge this gap uh, when people struggle to use the existing financial services. That's 
totally not what I would have expected you to say, Aparna. <laughs> I'm, I want to dig into that a little bit more. As a longtime user of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, from my perspective and from the perspective of most people who I know in my circles, it's actually a lot easier to use the banking system. And there's a lot more protections built into the banking system than there are built into cryptocurrency, where inherently, if you're actually following through and holding your own keys, there's a level of responsibility there where you can actually lose your money if you don't do a good job of maintaining that responsibility. Whereas with a banking system, there's a lot of kind of margin of error, right? Because even though they have control, well, that actually means that they can help you to not hurt yourself in taking actions like that. Do you think that cryptocurrency or Bitcoin are an eventual solution for this problem and need a lot more work to get from here to there? Or are you saying that in the current state of the technology or the perhaps near-term state of the technology, this is a hole that you think it can fill within that community? That's a really interesting perspective that you bring in. I think where Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies can really help is by providing financial access to people who don't have access to it right now. So even in India, if you take a look at the unbanked communities, while they might have access to a banking service, they may not have access to other slightly more complex services like better loans or being able to insure themselves. And products like these, I think cryptocurrencies can really help with, primarily because they're now bridging the gap of providing access where people don't have access. And obviously, I think there needs to be an improvement in terms of the user interface or like you need to be building for people with their understandings and their level of literacy and knowledge in mind for it to really scale. So we've spoken to people from different countries so far who use Bitcoin or cryptocurrency to receive money from abroad and turn it into local money easily. I mean, are there people in your research you've encountered who are you know, using, for example, Bitcoin to bring money in or send money out or get around some of these barriers? Or is this something that's not really happening in India? One thing that I found really interesting was I realized that the immediate scope of cryptocurrencies and like foreign exchange and remittances market in India would actually be pretty huge. This was something that I realized when I was talking to different NRIs who send back money to their parents or people who send money from India to their kids who are studying abroad. I'm sorry, NRIs? Yes, sorry, non-resident Indians. And one story I remember is someone who was talking about how he sent money to his child. And he said, oh, I have a bank account in Singapore because I can't hold US dollars in an Indian bank account. I'm exposed to a large amount of foreign exchange risk. So I have to plan months ahead of time and deposit US dollar into my Singapore account and then send that to my child whenever she needs it. I can't instantaneously send her a large amount of US dollars. And that was really interesting to me because he said that he had to go and negotiate terms with the bank anytime he sent money abroad. This is something I think is an actual problem that a lot of people are currently facing in India. And this is something that I've seen a lot of people who are sending money to and from India talked about. Right now, the regulation prevents a large amount of money being held in any other currency other than the Indian rupee. And this currently affects not just individuals, but also large businesses. And there exists 
a large offshore Indian rupee trading market. So you see a potential for Bitcoin or cryptocurrency to help disrupt this? Yes. Now, if I were to send you, if you're in India today, if you went back to your mindset when you were on your trip and I had sent you $100 of Bitcoin, how quickly would you be able to turn that into rupees? I wouldn't be able to. Not unless I used something like local Bitcoins or unless I knew someone in India who had Bitcoin. Because right now, the regulation in India is against cryptocurrencies. So the government has, as of last year, issued a statement that you can't convert fiat into crypto and any business that's operating in the space. So all exchanges have had to shut down or turn their business into some sort of a peer-to-peer exchange model. And any exchange that tried to set up an ATM, I remember like Unocoin trying to set up a Bitcoin ATM and the founders being thrown in jail for that. Is it very hard to turn crypto into fiat also? Yes. The conversion both to and from fiat is extremely restricted right now. But despite this, you see a large amount of volume on local Bitcoins, like the sixth largest in the world, which I think compares to the size of India as an economy. If you used it, I mean, is that something that you could do pretty easily in a big city? So I tried using local Bitcoins when I was in India and it's okay, but it's not the most easy to use experience. I found something like WazirX easier to use. Wazir X is like a local Bitcoins, but for the Indian market model. If you're someone who has this Indian identity or Aadhaar card, you just need to plug that in and then that's all they need for KYC. Wow. So the government's not restricting that company? Well, I think the government doesn't know that a large amount is being traded or they're still figuring out the regulation around that. Because what Wazir X is doing is they're just connecting people one person who has fiat and another person who has crypto and letting them do the trade by themselves. So they're providing a matchmaking service more than they are actually involved with the transaction itself, which is a little more ambiguous. Yeah, exactly. So if you use Wazir X and I sent you, let's say, Bitcoin, how quickly would you be able to, in a peer-to-peer marketplace, turn that into rupees? Actually, if it was very small amounts, I probably wouldn't be able to convert it because there's very low liquidity on all these markets. So I realized that even when I wanted to convert like, say, 200 rupees worth of Bitcoins into fiat, I was having trouble getting that exact amount. I was either able to get like 100 rupees more or 100 rupees less. And if you had that amount, would it take hours or minutes or days? Or how long would it take? Probably a couple of days. So why does the Modi government care so much about cracking down on on on-ramps and off-ramps? It sounds like there's a vibrant peer-to-peer marketplace, but it sounds like the the democratic Indian government is very fierce. And I think some people even said maybe the most anti-crypto government in the world. Why? I think there are a couple of different reasons for this. One is they're afraid of people evading taxes, and they're afraid of a large amount of money leaving the country. That's the primary reason. Another reason is they're afraid of large amounts of terrorism being funded through cryptocurrencies. And they feel like if it all happened in Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, that's not something that they have the power to control or the power to even fix in case of a large attack. And the third, I think, and biggest reason is 
they're afraid that if they open out the markets, then the government itself won't have any power over the Indian economy. With regard to the Facebook project that was in the cover of the Wall Street Journal a few days ago, they've said they want to focus on India. If hypothetically in the next year, Facebook as a company made it possible for Indian WhatsApp users to start trading credits with each other, possibly even with people using WhatsApp abroad, I mean, do you think that would have a massive impact? If so, how would that change things with open cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin? That's a great question. I'm really excited to see the impact that any sort of cryptocurrency could have in this market. I don't know how easy it is going to be to convince the government to let them use even like a Facebook stablecoin or what that process of changing regulation is going to look like. I do think it's impactful. I think once we get past that initial barrier of we're using some cryptocurrency, it'll probably be easier to convince the government that let's use a completely open and decentralized one as opposed to one that's controlled by Facebook. When we were talking about your background, you mentioned that you kind of started with a focus on cryptocurrency broadly, and then you pretty quickly branched off into proof of stake research. I'd love to kind of get your perspective on that and just sort of what that journey was like real briefly. Yeah. Back in 2016, which is around when I started getting into proof of stake research, Ethereum was probably the only other blockchain that existed apart from Bitcoin that was seriously considering scaling and the only scalability solutions back then was like maybe lightning, but definitely not what we have today. And so back then, this idea of proof of stake as a better energy conservation mechanism than proof of work made the future sound very promising to me. I'm hearing a lot of past tense here. (laughs) It's all past tense because I think right now it's already been built and like It's yet to be tested if it actually stands up to all the promises. But I think I got into proof of stake primarily because of those reasons. And the idea of like combining economics so closely with cryptography kind of blew my mind, partly because like so far I'd been only used to reading very rigorous cryptography research papers. But this was the first time I was taking all of these different concepts like mechanism design and applying it into building a whole new system, which is why I got into proof of stake. So one of the questions we've been asking everybody is, there's this thesis that transaction fees matter a lot in the developing world because the cost of, say, a 25 cent or a 50 cent transaction fee to get a transaction like actually put onto the Bitcoin blockchain is pretty expensive in local currency terms. And so I was curious and would like to ask you, Does the transaction fee matter if it's at that price within that community? I think until the regulation eases up, transaction fees may not be the biggest concern right now in India. If even acquiring cryptocurrencies is so hard, like I think people are very willing to pay a high transaction fee. I think the people who are currently buying and selling cryptocurrencies tend to be like people who are a little technologically savvy somewhere in their 20s or 30s, males, usually, people who are like profit motivated. These tend to be the people who are currently dealing with it in India. And so any transaction fee doesn't really affect them buying and selling it. Right now, I think if we had to expand it into impacting lives of other people, 
that's when it'll make a difference. And are there other cryptocurrencies that you see as being more likely to gain popularity or already perhaps more popular than Bitcoin? It's already very clearly just Bitcoin. We've been hearing that from everybody. And honestly, it's been a little surprising to me every time because in some cases, the cost is very, very high like relative to current transactions. But it sounds like there's really more of a speculation angle in terms of people who are actually engaging with it now more than a utility or remittances type of use case. Yeah. When I was talking to a few different exchanges about this, one thing I realized was that most people who are using cryptocurrencies are buying and holding Bitcoin. And even despite regulation, they've been holding onto it. They haven't sold any of it or converted it to fiat, which is really cool. And it's almost like a 90% Bitcoin and like 10% other currencies in India. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was sponsored by Edge.app and BlockchainTraining.org. This episode featured content by Stephanie Murphy, Andreas Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, Alex Gladstein, Aparna Krishna, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Stephen and Adam, with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.